I'm Will Baker, president of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. Welcome to our continuing podcast series, Turning the Tide, Saving the Chesapeake Bay. I'm joined by one of the, can I say, younger members of our staff? Yes, probably <laughs> one of the youngest. One of the youngest. Elena Chuni is our litigation fellow this year. She has a great background, undergraduate at Michigan State. Yes. You grew up in Michigan. Yes, go green, go white. <laughs> First of all, welcome, Elena. Thank you. <laughs> so you grew up in Michigan, Michigan State undergraduate, Western Michigan for your JD. Yes. And you are admitted to the Maryland Bar. Correct. That's great accomplishment so far in your young life. Thank you. You um, worked for the Student Conservation Association, Detroit Public Schools. Mm -hmm. But one thing, as I've learned, that has been consistent throughout your career and your student work and your work after school has been a keen interest in the environment that is and environmental justice. Yes. Tell us, tell us a little bit about it. Well, I guess I'll start with where I'm from in Michigan. Um, I was born and raised in Detroit. And I guess I'll preface it by saying I am a triplet. So in the summertime, my mother would look for ways to get rid of us. <laughs> so <laughs> all, all, all sisters? Yes, all mm -hmm. sisters, all girls. Um, she did that by sending us to camp. She would send us to camp for a few weeks. And it was there that my passion for the environment sparked. I guess where the environmental justice came. Hold on on that. I'm always interested. So what at camp sparked your interest in the environment? Was it a person? Was it an activity? It was probably an activity. You know, in Detroit, you don't get to see the outdoors like you do when you're actually at a campsite because it's just open land. It's open land, it's water, it's trees, it's nature. It's just nice and quiet and peaceful. So while at camp, we would do a number of outdoor activities like archery, hiking, swimming, fishing, and every year I looked forward <laughs> to going. Did you go all through school for years and years? Yes, um, we started going at the age of five and I think my last camping trip was 16. I uh -huh. went to a camp in Perry Sound, Ontario. It was the Tim Hortons camp and I learned how to water ski, I learned how to jet ski, I learned how to actually build my own shelter. So I have developed a great relationship with the environment and I wanted to share it with others in the city of Detroit yeah. who didn't have it. Take me back. I want to go back to camp. I was so homesick at camp. I don't think I got anywhere near the experience I should have. Uh, okay, so so that was summer camp. Mm -hmm. That got your interest in the environment, environmental justice. Um, well, growing up in the city of Detroit, you do see a lot of industrial factories in the area. And one thing that I noticed, which I at the time while I was in school, I didn't know that there was something wrong, but my school was located right next door to a waste incinerator. Uh, my sister, she has very bad asthma. I don't know if there is a correlation or a connection, but what I realized was we would have a real bad stench coming into our classrooms and we never knew what it was. And as I got older, I realized it was part of the pollution coming from the waste incinerator. And it's just like you look at these things when you get older and you're like, it's not okay. But when you're in the situation, you don't know that it's not okay and that you can actually do something about it. 
So that's what sparked my interest for actually getting involved in my community and trying to teach others the importance of establishing a, re a relationship with the environment, whether it be recycling or sending a letter to your congressional representative saying, you know, this incinerator is doing this amount of pollution, we need to do something about it. And, and environmental justice is, is the broader term that refers to the way it seems as if poor communities, all too often communities of color, mm -hmm. are saddled with the worst parts of society's environmental messes, whether they be industries that are highly polluting, toxic waste dumps, Superfund sites, things like that. Yes. And the concept of environmental justice is the concept that there, justice should be imposed on the environment and on communities to not have to suffer uh, uh, more than anyone else. That is is that am I, am I close there? You actually did I do all right? Yes, you are very correct. I actually have the um, EPA's version of environmental justice and what they defined it as, and you did a great job <laughs> as <laughs> at describing it. But I'll read it to you. Okay. It is uh, definitely the fair treatment and meaningful involvement of all people, regardless of race, national origin, color with respect to the development, implementation, and enforcement of environmental laws, regulations, and policies. So I look at it like this. I ask myself a simple question. If I lived in a middle-class neighborhood, would I want an incinerator in my backyard? The answer is no. And I'm pretty sure a lot of people would say no. So why is it okay for a waste incinerator to go in a backyard for someone who doesn't have the voice of someone that lives in a middle-class neighborhood? It's not okay. So, Elena, you've been terrific on working on environmental justice issues here. So we want to come back to this. But first, how did you get to the Chesapeake Bay Foundation? Wow, that is a very good story. Um, I guess I'll start with how I ended up in Maryland. Okay. Uh, I was doing an internship with the Department of Interior, the Office of Legislative and Congressional Affairs. Federal Department of Interior. Yes. Yep. Mm -hmm. And I worked on a BP oil spill. So I was like, I gotta come back out here. I love it. I love it here. You know, DC is a bit expensive, so I can do Maryland. <laughs> so <laughs> I went to law school and I said, if I take the bar and I pass it on the first time, I'm moving out to Maryland. Passed it. I'm like, okay, time to move out to Maryland. So you you're, you took the bar in Maryland first? Yes. Because you wanted to move here. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I took the Maryland bar, I passed it, I moved out here, and I was like, okay, I need to find a job. <laughs> I ended up getting a contractual job with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service where I worked on a case with them and I met an attorney that worked here. She said, you have a great personality. You seem like you should work for CBF. Apply for this position. I said, hmm. That wouldn't be Ariel by any chance. Oh, that is. <laughs> That's her. That's a leading question. I know a little bit of this. <laughs> Yes, it was Ariel Sulaski. So she was the one that said, you have the personality for the nonprofit organization that I work for, and I think you should apply for the position. I applied for the position, and apparently John Mueller liked me enough to hire me. And he still likes you. Yes. <laughs> and Ariel was the litigation fellow the year prior. Yes, she was. Very so it worked good. out. Very good. So give us a sense of some of the cases you've worked on, either EJ or not, environmental justice or not. Hmm. Talk about what you're doing right now on the um, 
the, the, the filing of the um, comments Comment. on the EPA action. So currently I am drafting a comment letter in regards to the 176A petition that the states that belong to the OTR, which is the ozone transport region, they drafted a, a letter saying that nine upwind states are creating more deposition, well, air deposition for their states and they can't come into compliance. So what we're arguing, CBF, is that, you know, if we add these nine upwind states to the OTR, then... OTR. The ozone transport region. <laughs> then we can reduce the amount of NOx deposition going into the bay. Nitrogen oxide. Correct. Yeah. Nitrogen oxide. Which is a huge source of nitrogen, which is one of the systemic polluters of the Chesapeake, Correct. is is airborne. Even though we think of it as coming from sewage treatment plants, mm -hmm. agricultural runoff, that sort of thing. Airborne deposition, mostly from power plants, but right. anytime you burn a fossil fuel, you send nitrous oxides into the atmosphere and nitrogen comes back down. So and it it's is a, a big, big issue. source. Yeah, it's a big issue now. So these nine states are concerned that the contribution from other states is throwing them out of compliance? So the nine states are the upwind states that we're trying to get to become a part of the OTR, which is the ozone transport region. Right. The states that are currently in the OTR, Maryland, Vermont. Delaware. Delaware, New York. I'm missing some. Is New Jersey, Pennsylvania? Yep, Pennsylvania. I'm missing two. So at any rate, they're the ones that are concerned they can't meet. So Correct. we're trying to bring these other states who, if we could use the term, we use the term watershed, mm -hmm. an area where water coming off the land comes into the bay. If you could use the term airshed for the bay, these are other states in the bay's airshed. Correct. Which means they contribute airborne pollutants to the Chesapeake. Correct. And so you're working on filing a letter that will, among other things, um, maintain our ability to get involved in future litigation? Correct. Tell us a little bit about that, how the process works. By filing a comment letter, we preserved our right to sue if the EPA decides that they want to deny the 176A petition. So this gives us, we're now into the case, and this, if, if we're not into the case by filing a comment letter or doing something else, then later in the process, if we had wanted to litigate, we wouldn't be allowed to because right. we had no record of being involved. Correct. So you, that's one thing the litigation department's got to keep track of all the time, making sure we're doing things early on in a case uh, so we don't get ruled out later on when we might have seen a stronger connection to the bay and, and uh, a law being broken. That is correct. So you can imagine how many emails I get on a daily basis <laughs> <laughs> about things that maybe we should comment on. Internally and externally, There I guess. we go, yes. <laughs> uh, you had talked about the incinerator mm -hmm. where you grew up in Detroit. Big incinerator in Baltimore. Yes. Owned by, uh, run by the Wheelabrator companies. Correct. Talk a little bit about what's going on there and what some of the issues are. Well, currently we are trying to figure out if there could be stronger regulations at the Wheelabrator facility. My job in looking at that is to look at the human health aspect. 
So what I have been doing is I have been reaching out to members of CBF to see how they feel about having a trash incinerator in their backyard. And what I've noticed is that a lot of people do not even know what the Willebrader facility was. Nor that it's emitting pretty high levels of pollutants. Correct. Tell us about that. So right now we have people working on trying to figure out exactly how much it's polluting as far as nitrogen oxide is concerned and if it, the Willebrader facility can be polluting less. I think once we get that information, it'll help us further where we want to go. And these are pollutants that not only are dangerous to the water mm -hmm. in Baltimore Harbor and the bay adjacent, but also to human health. Correct. So through uh, in, uh, asthma incurred? Asthma, cancer, uh, bronchitis, just, you know, when you breathe in a lot of these things, you don't know what you're breathing in. So they have longer term effects that later in life you realize, well, how did I get to here? Right. And it's because of the stuff you've been breathing in, which nitrogen oxides, any other type of air pollutions. Particulate so. matter. So this is clearly an environmental justice issue. Correct. The facility is located in a part of Baltimore that's very industrial. Mm -hmm. Two stadiums, however, both the Ravens and the Orioles stadiums. But the community of people who live around it have very little knowledge about what they're being subjected to. That's correct. And you're finding they're concerned and want to be part of the process? They are. And that's, that is a great example of what environmental justice is. It's making the community aware of what's going on around them because they don't have that information readily available for them. But CBF does and other organizations do. So it's our job to make sure that they know what's going on in their backyard. And then opening up to them the processes, the, the pathways that they can follow to get involved and have their voices heard. Correct. You've been involved with talking to CBF members and volunteers and others in Baltimore as well on another issue that is really right in their backyard. Yes. Tell us about that one. <laughs> Literally, right in their backyard, maybe in their basements. Um, so I've been speaking with members who stay in the city of Baltimore who have been experiencing sewage backups in their basements. And it's just really sad to know how many people cannot get out of their situation. Um, one volunteer that I spoke with, she's had over 12 backups in her basement. and the city has not claimed responsibility. Her insurance company has not been willing to pay for the damage. And when they have paid for the damage, they haven't supplied enough money. She's dipped into her 401k. She's borrowed money from family and friends. And she's at the point where she's tired of experiencing backups and she just wants it to stop. So just so we're clear, this is Raw sewage. Correct. Backing up into people's basements. And the for many of us who've never had that happen, the, the effects of that are just chilling. It is. It is. Um, one lady, she, um, she went in the basement and she saw so much raw sewage in her basement and her dog was in a corner. She couldn't get into her dog because there was so much water. The fire department had to come rescue her dog. 
her dog was covered in fecal matter. And another case you told me about a situation in which might be the same one, the house is virtually unsellable. Yes. If that's a word. And she's trapped in a house where they're continuing sewage backups, but she can't sell it. She didn't know when she bought it. Mm -hmm. She was not made aware that that could potentially happen as far as the backups are concerned. And she's been in the home for over 30 years, and now she can't sell it because she would have to sell it for way less than what she bought it for, and she can't afford to move anywhere else. She's put so much money into fixing it up that it's more of a waste of money for her to move out than it is for her to stay. So we should let our listeners know, especially those who are not from Baltimore, don't read Maryland papers, that what's happening in Baltimore is not unlike what's happening in other old cities around the country, where aging infrastructure pipes that have been repaired many, many times continue to break and to leak. Baltimore has a unique problem in that uh, where the 12-foot, literally 12-foot forced main for sewage goes into one of the two big sewage treatment plants in Baltimore, it's literally two-thirds below grade. Mm -hmm. So there are these huge backups and especially when it rains and more water infiltrates into the sewage pipes, that can be even worse. There's a long-term solution there, but it's going to take another several years at it best. Is. It is. And there's a consent decree being negotiated between EPA and the state and the city. So it's a very, very difficult situation. And as you say, I mean, the people who live in these areas where sewage backs up, I mean, they are feeling it right in their own house. Yeah, and it is, it's sad because it's like you want to give them great information. You're like, hey, I figured out some great information for you, but you can't. Great solutions, yeah. but they have, no, it's patience and waiting and having some trust that the city will get this done and come to a, con uh, a conclusion that's good for the bay good for the harbor and good for the people who live there. Right. Elena, let's 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 turn to some other issues. You've been working with a community actually very close to CBF's headquarters. Yes. Tell, tell us about that. So I've been working with the Venice Beach community. Um, I thought this was close by. You mean California? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Venice Beach, Maryland, next door in Anne Arundel County, near the Chesapeake Bay Foundation's headquarters. Yes, that is correct. So Venice Beach is a uh, predominantly African-American community that has been there for a number of years. Decades and decades yes, and decades. decades. And currently, I have been engaging with the community over there to get them more involved in water quality issues. Because we are neighbors of the Venice Beach community, it's important for us to foster a relationship with them. And what I've realized is that a lot of people in that community are equally as concerned about the bay as we are. They love it. They do. Yep. They love their bay, and they love where they live. They love the old foundation and the history of their community, and what they're trying to do is preserve it. Currently, there is... Um, some issues going on with the critical area laws and Maryland's critical area law, which uh, regulates development along a thousand foot uh, strip 
around the bay and the tributary rivers. Correct. Yep. So some people are trying to build homes that are, are a little larger in respect to the rest of the homes in the neighborhood. And for a lot of community members over there, it's important for them to keep and preserve what they already have in their neighborhood. It's For them, it's not so much the development, it's the history. And they they have these homes so that their families and generations to come can also have the same home. And the, what's, what's the critical area issue that you've been working on? Currently, there is a person in their community trying to build a 10-bedroom home right in the critical area. And do you, do you see some potential violations of the Critical Area Act? Well, currently they're applying for a variance. Meaning an exception to the rule. Correct. Allowing them to... Build this 10-story home. So a strict interpretation of the law would say that could not, that structure could not be built in that location. That is correct because it is not, well, you could argue, it is not the minimum necessary to afford relief. He could build something smaller, like a four-bedroom home. Interesting. So you've got a situation in which the law says this structure should not be built under the under the but there is a an exception or a waiver provision in the law Mm -hmm. you've got a community that is not interested in seeing a a house of that size being built and we're looking at the law and the interpretation of it working with the community to see if this might be one way to modify the owner's uh, plans to be more in line with the community and to be better for the environment. Correct, because what the community is saying is, we're not saying that you can't have a house. Right. We're saying that we want you to have a house with the original footprint. And that conforms to the critical area law in mm-hmm. Maryland mm-hmm. and to sort of the the um, the character of our community. Right, the aesthetic value of their community. So where, where's the case now and what's likely to be the schedule going forward? Currently, it's still um, being heard with the Board of Appeals, Anne Arundel County Board of Appeals. We have a few more hearing dates left and we will see what happens in late October. All right. Good luck. Keep me informed. Thank you. So let's end with uh, a discussion of for, for just a bit about the whole concept that CBF has been so engaged in and has so much further to go on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Tell the listeners a little bit about what we have internally, the group of staff working on this, and, and what you've been doing. So with the diversity, equity, and inclusion, I think each department has contributed (laughs) their portion to making sure that we serve the mission of actually having more diversity, equity, and and inclusion at CBF and as well as in the environmental field. Um, I know litigation, for example, our vice, Vice President John Mueller, he is on the DEI committee and he is very fired up and ready to go. I think every two or three days, I get an email from John. Hey, look at this DEI thing we can do. (laughs) Hey, we gotta go to this. This is an outreach opportunity. So what we're trying to do is we're just trying to engage people and we're trying to let them see that as as, as far as diversity is concerned, it's not just about race. 
It's about income. It's about what you do. So watermen, it's about people who live right off of the bay. Farmers. Farmers, exactly. And we're trying to be inclusive with our programs so that everyone can get a sense of the importance of the Chesapeake Bay and the things that we can do with it. That's so well said, Elena. I can't tell you, your, your boss, John Mueller, who is one of my two senior deputies working on diversity, equity, and inclusion, I'm sure is, uh, as you said, <laughs> once he gets his teeth sunk into something, he won't let it go. Oh, and no. I imagine you're a little bit like that as well. I am. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I'm like, John, we got to do this. I'm like, we need more inclusion and we need more diversity just in the environmental field in general. Because I know for me, there aren't many African-Americans in the environmental field. So it's like, it's important for me when I hear a young child saying, hey, I want to be an environmentalist or I want to be a scientist. You can do it. You can do it. Let's put this out to our listeners. If people have ideas, let us know. You can email me. You can email Elena. You can send it to the general CBF mailbox. We are doing good things. We need to do more things. Mm -hmm. And we've got great plans for the future. So, Elena, I can't thank you enough. This has been a delight. I look forward to having you back again. We'll keep talking about some of these issues because we've really just scratched the surface. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I've really enjoyed this and save the bay. <laughs> right on. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Elena. For Elena Chuni, this is Will Baker, Turning the Tide, Saving the Bay, our podcast that's every two weeks, and our esteemed producer, Lauren Barnett, who does such a great job. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks, Elena. Thank you.